Luke 11, beginning with the first verse. Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day, give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend? And go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. May God add his blessing to that reading of his word. We come now to our second sermon on prayer here in the first part of Luke chapter 11. And I begin by saying that all of this is predicated, is based upon what was said previously in the first sermon regarding the Lord's Prayer. And the whole point of that sermon was to say that prayer should be, must be, God-centered. We must pray to God as our Father, for his glory, independence upon him, and in mindfulness of his grace, in, generally speaking, in his grace. All of that, this God-centeredness must be kept in mind as we now go to this second sermon. But after the Lord's Prayer... Christ himself shifts the focus more to our side of the equation, that he has given us the correct content, the very God-centered content of prayer, and now it has to do with us. What should our attitude be? What should our approach be to prayer? Is it something that should be said occasionally or done perfunctorily maybe? Because we know that God already knows everything, because we know that God already has determined all things, should we take an off-handed approach to prayer? And the answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. And to sum up what Jesus then goes on to say in verses 5 to 13, real prayer, God-honoring prayer, the prayer that God gives us to, to pray is persistent. And that's just because of who God is and who we are. It should be persistent. It doesn't make it some work to be rewarded. It's not made acceptable because of its persistence. As if to say, well, this kind of of prayer is not worthy, but if you pray enough, at some point it crosses the threshold and makes it worthy, and which God as a reward then gives us what we ask. No, it's not that. 
No, persistence itself is the expression of faith and dependence. Apart from dependence, what's the point of prayer? If you can take care of things yourself, then do so. Why should you bother to pray about it? And apart from faith, it really doesn't matter what your needs are or how much you need them. It won't be answered because apart from faith, God's not going to give you a single thing. And, of course, you see, our faith has an object. It isn't a God, and this God who is good and knows how to give good things to those who need them and ask for them. That's, that's the basis of our, our faith. We believe that. And so persistence in, in prayer really is, is just the expression of these things, of our dependence upon God and of our knowledge of who God is, our faith in him. And so, quite rightly, the Lord Jesus and his instructions to us about prayer does not stop with the content of prayer, but he goes on to explain and to illustrate that we should pray persistently. And so the very simple thesis, the, the title of this sermon is that real prayer is persistent. Last time it was real prayer is, is God-centered. But we also say today that real prayer is persistent. I have these three points First, even ordinary fathers give to children who ask. Second, even ordinary men bow to persistence. And third, so ask God persistently. Even ordinary fathers give to children who ask. Even ordinary men bow to persistence. So ask God persistently. And as you see, I'm taking these in reverse order as they appear in the text. Well, first, even ordinary fathers give to children who ask. He gives this illustration in verse 11. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Well, that's pretty simple, I suppose. Children ask fathers for food. And ordinarily, the children get what they want because the fathers know that they need food in order to live. And they ordinarily don't give them some deadly, venomous animal instead. I asked uh, asked James um, whether I'd ever given him a scorpion instead of some food, and the answer was no. And children, I, I, I suppose the same. Have you ever received a serpent, a scorpion, or a stone as opposed to... Bread or or an egg? Probably not. Probably not. We wouldn't do such a thing, would we, to our own beloved children? We would not give them some deadly uh, uh, insect or reptile that could kill them. Instead, we give them good food. Now, if Jesus had stopped right there, that would be enough, brothers and sisters. That would be enough. All he'd have to say is to make the parallel. What do you know? God is as good as that. And, and that would be enough. We would have every encouragement then to pray with persistence because we'd know that, he, that God would do likewise. We're, we're not expecting a, a scorpion from him. But he does not stop there. We, we should say, by the way, of course, it's all predicated on what we heard before, that God really is our Father. That's the amazing and startling thing that Jesus says. So he said to him, when, <clears throat> this is verse 2, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven. Now, I get to say that. I'm the son, so I say, my father, and you get to say, my God. He says, our father in heaven. So God is, is, is a father. He is your father. He's going to be like the human father and give us what is good. That would have been enough. But he goes on. 
He says much more than that. He goes on to intensify things beyond that. In verse 13, if you then, being evil, know how to give good things. Because that's the reality of human fathers. You then, being evil, fallen human sinners. Those who are more often than not self-interested. Those who are more often than not selfish. And yet, you know how to give good things to your children. You then, being evil, how much more, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, this is, there's a technical term for this kind of argument in logic, isn't it? It's, it's a, a, an argument from the, the lesser to the greater. If this is true of this thing, then how much more of this greater thing? It's much greater. Because God is no sinner. God is no, no, no one who is limited by his, his own selfishness and, and lack of goodness. He's, a, he's defined by being good. The goodness of God is declared even by the things that are made on this earth. How much more so will he give good things to those who ask? Now, we should notice that the good gift that is particularly in view is the Holy Spirit. And when I point this out, I'm amazed sometimes that the response of some people is, oh, as if that were disappointing. As if they would prefer it to have been said, how much more will your Heavenly Father give fame and riches to those who ask him? That they would prefer that, I think. Well, allow me to remind you that the Holy Spirit is the greatest and most precious gift that could be possibly imagined. And not a single human being is ever worthy of such a gift. You're so far from being worthy of it. That it is an amazing thing that God should give it to any one of us. His Holy Spirit is the greatest gift. He is the life giver. He is the light giver. He is the one who leads us to heaven. He is the one who grants us the beauty and riches of holiness, which is the nature of God's own treasure. When God opens his treasure house, what is there? What does he have? Is it gold? Is it, is it diamonds? No. It's his holiness. It's his holiness. And God is bestowing that same holiness upon us through his Holy Spirit. He's giving that to him. And not only just giving it externally, not just giving it as some external gift. He is giving the very source of that holiness. He is giving himself. He is giving him his own third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to us. Bestowing that as a gift. What more could he possibly give? He couldn't give any more than that. He is the one who unites us to Christ. Apart from him, we have no union with Christ. We cannot be part of Christ. But with him, we have all things. We be, with him, we, are, we become one with Christ. And we have a fellowship then with the triune God. And this is the one, by the way, that the Son purchased for us. Because the point is, yes, none of us are worthy of such a gift. How could we be worthy? We, we would not dare to wear such a garment were it to be given to us on earth, we, we, would be, we, would, we would shun from taking upon us the trappings of royalty. We would not be wearing an ermine coat, would we? And far less would we be wearing the trappings of divinity. We would not be wearing something that belongs only to God, except that the Son of God purchased it at the infinite cost of his own blood. 
He who laid down his life secured for us the great gift of the Holy Spirit. And now, now he bestows it upon us. And he says, the Father is so willing to give good things to those who ask that the analogy is us giving an egg to our child as he giving the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Now, I hope you're blown away by that. I hope you understand just how wonderful a promise and a gift that is. You being evil, God, in his perfect holiness, willing, ready to give the greatest of all gifts to anyone who asks. Well, secondly, if that is that ordinary fathers give to those who ask, to children who ask him, then secondly, even ordinary men bow to persistence. In verse 5, he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend? And go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. So just think about the scenario that Jesus has painted. The need is very pressing. It has arisen suddenly, and it is at the worst possible time. Apparently, this man was not prepared for hospitality. It was not something that had been prepared in advance, and he was caught um, without food. Someone has just come to him in the midst of a journey. He doesn't have food for him. There, is no, there are no hotels at this point, no motels, and so friends just drop in on friends sometimes, and he just happened at a bad time, in a bad situation, doesn't have any food, and the man is hungry. But worse than that, it's not 12 noon when everyone is up and awake and about and the door is open. It's midnight. Everyone's asleep. The door is shut. And so as far as convenience goes, as far as a natural willingness to help and a natural readiness to help, this is pretty much the worst case scenario. Right? And all that is reflected in the man's answer in verse 7. And he will answer from within and said, do not trouble me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise to give to you. In fact, I think we could go beyond the mere circumstances dictating that answer. We could, I think we could, imagine a very generous man saying, okay, a, dear, a very dear friend who had a generous and kind heart saying, of course, let me go and, and get these things for you. Don't, you know, don't do this every night, but I'll go do that. But that's not the man that Jesus had in mind. It's not the generous, kind-hearted man. It's not the very dear friend who's willing to do anything for his friend. He's no amazing saint, but just some ordinary garden variety sinner who says, Don't bother me! That's his response. Why then? Why then does the man get what he wants? Why then does he leave with exactly what he needed? Why? It's not because of the man's saintly generosity. It's not even because of the closeness of the friendship he has with his friend. No, verse 8, it says, I say to you, he will, though he will not rise and give to him because he is a friend, not on that basis, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Persistence. That word more literally is shamelessness shamelessness. He's not being sensitive to what is proper, what is etiquette. And the picture that is being painted here is that the man is not shaken by that initial refusal. He just takes it as an invitation to keep talking, to keep asking. 
And he keeps on asking and keeps on asking. And eventually, just to get rid of him, he's not getting any sleep anyhow, probably waking up the others. And man eventually relents. He will rise and give him as many as he needs. What's implied? What's implied? If that is what some ordinary sinner will do, how much more so will God for those who ask him with persistence? Well, that's reiterated in even stronger terms in another part of Luke, in Luke chapter 18. This is another parable. And he spoke a parable to them that men ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will adventure, lest by her continual coming she weary me. The Lord said here what the unjust judge said, And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with him? I tell you that, though, that he will avenge them speedily. And here we do not have a mere ordinary man. I mentioned the other one seemed to be a very garden variety man. Not a saint, but just ordinary. This one is the unjust judge. This one is a man who fears neither God nor man. He's a wicked man. He's an atheist. He lacks anything, nothing. He does nothing at all that restrains him and keeps him in the right way. Nothing to compel him. And this woman is a widow. She has no power. She has no prestige. He's not going to get in trouble in the slightest for giving her absolutely nothing yet. Yet, she gets what she wanted. Why? Because of her persistence. The whole point is of the parable is the very same as what we have here in, in Luke 11. The whole point, and he gives us in the beginning of that parable in, in Luke 18, then he spoke a parable to them that men ought, always, ought to pray always and not lose heart. Not lose heart. Because God is going to answer persistent prayer. Don't lose heart. You, being evil, know how to give good gifts. If you, the wicked, unjust judge, know that you should answer the persistent widow, lest she weary you, how much more will your heavenly Father ask, respond to those who ask persistently? And the obvious then, the obvious third point is, so ask God persistently. Verse 10, for everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. These series of three invitations are kind of actually of escalating intensity of, of merely asking, but also more actively seeking, and even more actively knocking. All these things will be granted. What amazing promises go along with them. They're unconditional. They're, they're, they're broad. They're wide. These invitations. It says ask, ask. Asking, now that implies something. It does imply humility. It implies an ongoing consciousness of need. Think right of the, the prayers also in Luke 18. These are very parallel passages. I'm sure when we come to Luke 18, we'll be looking back at Luke 11. But in Luke 18, 11, 
The, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as his tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. That's the end of his prayer. That's it. He didn't ask for anything. Why? Because he doesn't need anything. He's so lifted up in pride. He's so self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. So he does not ask for it. What about the other one? What about the prayer that's hurting? Hey, this one, he doesn't get what he asks because he doesn't ask. There's nothing to give to him. He certainly isn't justified, not that he asked for it. He thought he already was. Well, what about the other one? What about the tax collector? The tax collector standing afar off would not even so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other You see, in his humility, he has asked for something that he himself could not do, could never do, desperately need God's for, and is so mindful of that dependence. Just reiterates what was said in the Lord's Prayer itself. This utter dependence, that is a right spirit by which we pray, and apart from that dependence, we have no good prayer. Apart from that dependence and humility, there is nothing that we rightly interact with God in prayer. But if we ask, we ask in our humility and our consciousness of need. And the promise is everyone who asks receives. It coheres with everything else that we know. You know, we understand that, you know, if, if someone believes, it is because God has enabled them to believe. And, and sometimes people say, you know, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, if you believe that, that God is only, that only, that Christ has died only for the elect, then, you know, if, even if somebody believes, they'll not be saved because they're not of, elect, of the elect. And how cruel of God is that, that they couldn't possibly believe, uh, come to faith even if they wanted to? Well, that's the thing. It's, it begs the question. The question is, who is going to believe? And the answer is only those whom God has enabled to believe. Man is born in implacable hatred and rebellion against God. He hates everything that God says. But most of all, he hates the gospel of grace of all things. He hates the gospel of grace. Can't stand it. It's so humiliating, isn't it? It says you can't do it. You contribute nothing. There's not a single part of you that is acceptable to me. And if you're to come to me, I must do it all. And you have no part in it. So humiliating. Who then is going to believe? Only those whom God has supernaturally opened their eyes and ears to believe. And if someone asks, we can be sure of one thing, that God has supernaturally enabled him to ask. But I tell you this, if you ask, you will receive. And that's all you need to know. And he who seeks finds. What is being sought? What is being found? Again, these things have primarily to do with what the Lord's Prayer itself says. Primarily, it's about God. Primarily, it's about spiritual things. Our seeking primarily has to do with seeking God. Hebrews 11.6, But without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And the reward is Himself. The reward is that he grants that those who seek God diligently receive that which they want, which is, which is salvation, which is God, which is Christ. And we need to understand that. 
Again, because this is not the health and wealth gospel. This is not if you ask enough time for some material thing that you're guaranteed to get it. That's not what's being said. It's spiritual. Luke 12, 29. Do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind for all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you what? Not the Porsche. Your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, right? And what greater gift could be given than the kingdom? Those who seek will find. They will find Christ. They will find the kingdom. They will be granted these things. And perhaps most directly relevant to the initial parable, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. Our knocking has primarily to do with God. John 10.9 says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Christ says he's the door. And what happens if you knock on that door? Answer, it will be open to you. You knock on that door, you come to Christ seeking salvation, and it will be granted to you. All of these things are promises wonderfully unconditional. Knock and the door will be opened. And again, you say to me, what about unanswered prayer? Okay, there is such a thing and given some, some qualifications around it. Second Corinthians twelve seven, the, the Apostle Paul himself says, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, is this not a case in which someone asked for something and did not receive? Well, What we can say to that is, of course, we're not promised perfect health. And again, I I remind you, if Christ didn't have it, then don't think that something has gone terribly wrong if we don't have it. Christ died an early death. We understand now, of course, in this case, it was not through disease, but it was definitely through thorns, wasn't it, of a different kind. It was through murderous violence. And the point is, the point is, that he was not given an easy life to the age of 100. Now, what we understand then, if Christ had it, so let, let's say that if Christ didn't have it, then don't think you're guaranteed it. On the other hand, if Christ did have it, then you have every reason to ask for it, okay? That's, a, that's encouragement. I, I, so, so don't worry too much about the things that Christ didn't have, but do think about the, Christ, the things that Christ did have, all right? He didn't have a wonderfully easy life that went straight to 100 and then easily passed into the presence of God. It was a little bit more troublesome than that. It was a little bit more difficult. But what did he have? He had salvation. He had, the, he had resurrection. He had sufficient strength for the day and the work that was given to him. He had obedience. He had holiness. He had the help of the Holy Spirit. He had wisdom. All of these things he had. And guess what? You have every encouragement to ask for these very same things and they will be given to you. There's no doubt in my mind that if you ask to be led by the Holy Spirit, it will be given. There's not the slightest doubt in my mind that if you ask for wisdom because you lack it, that you'll be given wisdom. We know that you will be. 
A life entirely without physical infirmities? No, I, I can't say that. Sometimes God has his good reasons for granting infirmities. But even in this thing, Paul speaks as if this were an exception, as if pretty much every time else that I prayed with persistence about anything in my life, it had been granted, except for this one thing. Spoken even there as if it were an exception. And so we have every reason to ask God for good things. We trust him that he knows what are good. But he commands us, he invites us to ask because he stands ready to give them. Now the application first and foremost is to seek the Lord with persistence. Because actually the basic thrust of all of this, the basic thrust of it is evangelistic. That's where it is. You know, we live in such a godless time, such a, a low point in the history of the church in this, in this land that we forget the possibility of, that there, ought, there could be someone who wants to be a Christian, but God has not yet seen fit to give them that which they desire. We used to call such people seekers. They come to church They earnestly would desire to be believers. They earnestly would desire to to be Christians. They seek such thing, and yet it has not yet been granted to them. They don't actually believe in Christ because they've not yet been granted supernaturally the work of regeneration. And the question is what to do? What to do? In better times, by the way, it seems that the church had lots of them. Edwards is always talking in his sermons to the seekers who are in front of him, and he's always telling them, don't give up. Don't give up seeking. Well, that's what I say to you. If you are a seeker, if you are seeking, if you're not yet come to a place of rest, if you've not yet come to a place of assurance of your faith in Christ, and I say, keep on seeking. Seek the Lord with persistence. Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. It is your great and, and only priority. Until you receive that which you desire, until you receive salvation, what else is there? What other important thing could there be? You know very well of your own mortality. You know very well that you're not guaranteed to live forever. You know very well that, that heaven and hell hang in the balance. And that apart from Christ, apart from receiving that which you ask, that you'll burn forever in the lake of fire, of torment, prepared for Satan and his angels. And justly so, that's what your sins deserve. God is just. But with Christ, of course, with Christ, you're granted forgiveness from these things and offered eternal life in heaven forever. That's what he's saying when he's talking about seeking these good things and what the, the promise particularly is given. We don't know about anything else, but one thing we can be absolutely certain about asking is that he will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And isn't that a wonderfully, wonderfully beautiful promise? He encourages you to ask with persistence, just like that that widow, just like that man who comes. He may not give it to you immediately, but the promise is that it will be granted eventually. And so you have every reason then not to give up, every reason to pray with absolute persistence, that God would grant you this greatest of gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I will just, as a way of encouragement, just mention one little exception, because in fact there does seem to be a time in which Christ did not receive that which he asked for. 
And the funny and strange thing is that it seems to have been a midnight prayer. The very, very picture that the Lord uses of someone coming to ask somebody at midnight. And that prayer, friends, was a prayer in Gethsemane. Here the Lord had come. At the moment of darkness, at a moment of greatest need, in the worst case scenario. And if all we knew was this Luke chapter 11, we would say the Lord is about to receive everything that he's asked for. The weird and strange thing is that he does not. He says in Luke twenty-two forty-two, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. That's the expression of his inclination. That is the expression of what his druthers might be. Take the cup away from me. Because the cup is so abhorrent. The cup of God's wrath is so terrible. He says, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. But with this caveat, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the son did not get his druthers in this case. It was not the father's will to give that. And it wasn't because he was asleep in bed. It wasn't because he was a a sinful human father that was selfish. It was precisely because he had so determined to give good gifts to his own children. That in fact the son himself was to be the source of that gift. To be sacrificed for us in order that we might live. He was pleased to put his only begotten son to grief, to put him to death for us. And so, my beloved, can we sometimes be thankful for some unanswered prayers? Sometimes that we do not get our druthers. Well, secondly, I would say that we ought to pray with persistence. Of course, we ought to seek the Lord. That is the main thing. That is the greatest thing. But there are many other things to pray for. Of course, among other things, our own family, which is so heavily on my heart, I think. We ought to pray with persistence. And the question is, who among us can say that we've really gone beyond all bounds of propriety when it comes to just how often and how insistent we have been with God in prayer? Can it be said of us that we are truly shameless in the way that we come to the Lord in prayer? That we just keep on asking and keep on asking beyond what, what politeness And the rules of ordinary human discourse would allow us to do. Can we say that? You know, the end of that Luke 18 parable, I didn't read it, but I'll read it now. It says this, after all these wonderful promises, after he says that this widow received what what she wanted, it says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? And he says, I've given you these promises. I've made these analogies. I have given you all these reasons, these arguments. But will I find faith on the earth? Will people take advantage of these things? Will people actually pray with persistence? And he suspects not. Well, I want us to know that we ought to pray with persistence. I want us to know, by the way, that we don't do it alone. Holy Spirit himself makes intercession for us. Christ, Hebrews Hebrews 7.25, He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. That's what He's doing. His principal occupation right now is making intercession for His people. 
Romans 8.38, who is he who condemns? If It is Christ who died and furthermore also is risen, who is at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. We have every encouragement to pray and we don't do it alone. And so we ought to keep praying. We ought to keep praying for those things that we are certain that it is God's will that we receive. It is, we should, for instance, to pray for wisdom, as I mentioned in James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, and who has all perfect wisdom? If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with, not doubt, with no doubting. We ask in faith, believing he is able and willing to give such things. We, we act even as the intercessors for those around us. Christ himself intercedes, and we intercede for those around us. We ask, Lord, give them the Holy Spirit. And we do so persistently. We pray that the Lord would expand his kingdom, because that is precisely the point of the Lord's prayer. Of course, he means his own church here. We pray that the Lord would build it. We pray that the Lord would build the church in Hexham and other places, and Sheffield and Berlin, and who knows where else. Because that is what he has taught us to pray for. And we rightly pray persistently for such things. Well, let us pray. Heavenly Father, what, can we, what more can we add? What more can we say to these things except to come to you, to fling ourselves down, to bow down and to pray and to ask for these very things? You are our Heavenly Father, so far above any human father that could possibly be imagined. Much, much, much beyond some unjust judge. You are the righteous and perfect judge. Much, much beyond some ordinary, sinful, and selfish human friend. You are the perfect friend, a sinner's friend, Lord. Perfect in your holiness, perfect in your goodness. Even the world around us knows that you are good from the way that you have created things. And Lord, you are better even than any human father. And Lord, you have given us these broad and open and generous promises that we can come to you. And Lord, how I particularly pray for those seekers, those who know that there is a gospel. Those who know what this gospel is, know that they are sinners and desire that they would be Christians, desire that they would have true and saving faith, but they've not yet received what they've asked for. Heavenly Father, we pray that they would not lose heart. We pray, Lord, that they would be persistent and they would keep on asking, that they would keep on seeking and they would keep on knocking at that door. We know that door is Christ. And he has promised that he will open to them. And Lord, how we pray for those around us, particularly our own family members. Some of us are tempted to give up. Some of us have been praying long. But Lord, we know that it has not been persistent enough. Lord, we have flagged it many times. Heavenly Father, how we pray. That though we understand, Lord, it is not your will always and in every place and every situation to save our children, our parents, our brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles. Heavenly Father, how we pray that we would at least uh, exceed the boundaries of propriety uh, 
in asking you persistently that we would even be shameless in our continually coming before you until we receive the good thing of which we desire. Heavenly Father, how thankful, Lord, that we know that those who ask for the Holy Spirit will certainly receive it. And as we pray, Lord, for the non-Christians, those who have not yet put their faith in Christ, we ask that you'd give the Holy Spirit to them. And we pray for ourselves that we would be continually being filled in your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.